Welcome to Serious Fun, a podcast where I have serious fun conversations about life, society, culture, and health. It's Brooks here. This week, my guest is Kurt Bednarsik. Kurt is a movement and leadership coach. He's a family man, and he's a self-described professional me. Kurt and I met in the Strong Coach program where I had the pleasure of being his mentor. But given the level of coaches that that program attracts, uh, you could say that our mentorship quickly became a two-way street. Kurt and I had the tendency to venture off, talk about life, family, spirituality, movement, culture, things like that. And I can truly say I have learned so much from that man over the past year in our phone conversations. Kurt is a curious observer and explorer of health and wellness, and since the early 2000s, he studied under several experts across a variety of fields, and he supported hundreds of others in their pursuit of their own self-expression. We talk about what it means to be resilient and how to be anti-fragile, which is a nod to the author Nassim Taleb, who wrote a book by the same name, Anti-Fragile. We also discuss how to use disorder and discomfort to your advantage and how to empower and protect yourself with words. I'm excited to present this serious fun conversation with Kurt Bednarsik. Enjoy. fantastic let's do some dick measuring contests over how many uh pre-toddler books we can read this year you definitely got me beat i see you have more leather bound books on your bookshelf than i've got they do smell so of rich must, rich mahogany you must, be, you must be way smarter than me and have it all figured out man as much as i would love to take claim for all of these uh immaculate books you see behind me these books actually uh, are the personal collection of chris moore and so they are on display in the Barbell Buddha, co-founder Barbell Shrugged, if you're unfamiliar out there in the airwaves. Um, this is his personal collection, his personal library. It's a little over 200 books, and it's not his entire library. It was the uh, books that I was uh, imbued with the privilege of hosting and caring for until another home and display is available and appropriate so um i'm with kurt he's my friend he's really smart and we're gonna prove it today on serious fun what's going on man no that's really cool man actually um so you as as i can imagine is true for many other people you you were the one who introduced me to the barbell buddha and so a quick note on uh, duality here. First of all, super grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, in the t- in the uh, vein of serious and fun, I've been on a little bit of a uh, internet siesta, trying to be as as uh, as off the airwaves as much as possible. Uh, however, you and I have never met in person. I never met Chris Moore, and I'm I'm truly inspired by the way that you and him and so many others that I've only met through the beauty of the internet. So uh, just want to share that I'm grateful for that. And 
you know, <laughs> let's, let's utilize the tools for good. Received bro. Um, I mean, why not start at duality in the, if there's any, any duality that deserves to be covered in 2021, it, it really is the duality of the internet. Um, because right now it seems to be pretty popular to take a really strong stance on one side or the other when it comes to big tech, the scary people of big tech and how they're ruining the world. And the truth is, is that they're people just like me and you who set out to accomplish a goal just like we do every day. And then they took action and their plans met reality. And usually when plans meet reality like that, they're going to be different. The reality of things are going to be different than what we anticipated or what we intended them to be. And then when we're faced with a new decision, we try to make it as best as we can in real time. And given the power of hindsight, it's always very easy to look back and tell you what shouldn't have happened. Um, I believe I'm correct in saying it was South Park that had a fantastic character called Captain Hindsight. And his whole thing is that he would show up on the scene and tell people what, what they should have done now that now that things are the way that they are this shouldn't have gone this way or this shouldn't have gone this way so truthfully speaking what's actually real is that the internet has changed the fabric of society people have used the this amazing tool of the internet to either use it for good or use it for what is intended to be malice and i think most people fall somewhere in between they don't intend to be mal malicious with their words uh, on average. They intend to do good and people receive it in 2020 hindsight and make judgments on what somebody should have done. Can you think of any other dualities that you've been working on lately? Because that's a big one in my in my view. I, I like that one. You're kind of referring to a Monday morning quarterback type of situation or uh... – are you alluding to potentially, you know, firing off tweets or whatever on your social media in real time and, and being judged subsequently? That is, that, is that one, one example. Another would be uh, to scrutinize um, decisions that are made in uncertainty. So COVID has presented us a lot of opportunity to reflect and point fingers at people that made decisions that we didn't particularly care for after the fact. Um, but one thing that I know about decision making is I like to imagine that if I'm a decision maker, I'm sitting in a seat and I have a 360 degree view of my from my seat. And someone else can also be sitting at the table and they can be sitting so close to my view that they get 359 degrees of my view and perspective. But the difference between 359 and 360 is the difference between 211 Fahrenheit and 212 when it comes to boiling water. 211 is really hot, but 212 is boiling. That extra degree makes all the difference. So, yes, I am saying that in many cases, whether it's firing off a tweet or sending out a joke that you thought was funny uh, or a comedian that said something that was culturally appropriate and funny 10 years ago doesn't hold up well over time and is now being hyper scrutinized and judged uh, by many people uh, in hindsight. So, yeah, that's it. That's precisely what I'm describing. Sure. 
I imagine it's it's infinite number of variables at play here, but we're also in a society where it has become the norm to uh, virtue signal or imply that your your view at the t- from the table is the only one or that is ought to be accepted by anyone else, uh, which fundamentally I believe to be false. Uh, we're, we're all, we are all sitting at our own seat at the table to continue your metaphor. And, and so, um, personally, a, a, a large point of, uh, current awareness is toward that. I mean, I, I come from a pedigree of truthfully, my, my knee jerk reaction to try to be the smartest meathead. Um, and really doing a lot of reflection in this you know, new time to recognize and just really lean into humility and, and realize I only know what I've been curious enough to explore. That person likely has something to offer me. I'd rather ask than tell. Mm. Uh, work in progress, of course, because my, again, my, my limitation is also to be someone to tell you you should go to bed on time okay that's my opinion (laughs) so there is actually an example in my current frame of mind and if you're open to it i'll open up and tell you more about it let's go man i'll go anywhere you'd like so although this is something that i've known it's also something that i'm seeing more often And that is this. Words are being weaponized to influence people subconsciously and implant ideas in their mind to try to receive a predetermined outcome based on the words that we use. And at face value, we all do this. You're having a conversation with your friend and you want them to think that you're funny. So you use words that influence that outcome by using words you believe to be funny, and I influence the outcome of it being funny. Uh, I want to receive some sort of sympathy, so I add a little extra sauce, sympathy sauce in my language that uh, may predetermine the outcome that I want. And this is something that transcends political views, religious views, It is something that transcends all of these categories because no individual is beyond subjective or subconscious programming. And most of that is done through visual cues uh, or audio audible cues, especially language. So I'm reading uh, some news the other day. I have Apple phone. I pull up the news app. I follow as many different varied sources as I choose as as I can, you know, people that tend to offer a a nice spectrum of perspective, even if I don't agree with it, to invite in the idea that I don't know everything. And I read an article that I intended to read it one way, but because I have tools and awareness around language and influencing people with language. I read it differently than I imagine other people read it. 
And here was the story. The title of the article says Nazi concentration camp guard, 95 year old Nazi concentration camp guard deported from the U.S. And at face value, this is something that I can get behind. I don't like Nazis. One of my best friends is Jewish. I have a vested emotional interest into being against anything that is Nazi or concentration camp related. And so I start to read the article and the article gives very selective information. The selective information is as follows. This man was deported by immigration law because the prosecutor, and again, this is outside criminal law. I want to make sure that we have this basis of understanding. So he wasn't being accused of a crime legally, but the way that it was written insinuated that he was. This was all immigration law. So the law says that it's from a 1978 amendment called the Holtzman Amendment. That was part of a much larger immigration legislation that was passed in the United States in the 70s. And the Holtzman Amendment says that anyone associated or assisting with Nazi uh, uh, hate crimes and war crimes is able to be deported. Okay, cool. I can totally support that. So I start investigating what this man did. All they said was that he was present factually. They said there is a slip that shows that he was a Nazi concentration camp guard, and that was the only evidence that they needed to apply the Holtzman Amendment to him and deport him. Are you following me so far? Sure. 70 years ago or whatever. Yeah, and, and still, so, so my, again, what they're alluding to is that this man was a Nazi concentration, he was a Nazi who worked at a concentration camp, who evaded justice for war crimes and was found 75 years later in the United States and was sent back to Germany. So I am conditioned to believe that he has in some way done something wrong based on the language that they've used. And because oh. it's something that I ethically and morally agree with, I was inclined to be uh, uh, affirmative in saying, yeah, we should send this guy home. They went on to list how bad the conditions were in the uh, in the camp. They also acknowledged that it was a subcamp that was full with, with all kinds of prisoners of war, just like any war, just like the United States has had, just like anybody that's been to war has ever had. Um, we have prisoners of war. We keep them in camps and we guard them. That's just the way that war works. They also acknowledged that this man has never been associated with or accused of any wrongdoing while at the camp. Another fact, he was 19 and he was not a Nazi, also acknowledged in court. He was not a Nazi. He was a German Navy man who at the last two months of the war was repurposed because Germany was getting decimated in the war. He was repurposed to guard at a subcamp. He says that he actively asked not to hold a weapon. There is no evidence that he that his story can be discounted. And here's what I learned. After the war, he was there for two months, by the way. 
at he was at also there at a time where German supplies were being cut off and they were just coming out of a really hard winter. He was there in March and then he was basically captured by the British Army in May when the European uh, uh, Union, uh, essentially the, the, the allied powers, took over Germany. So the British hold him and they put him to trial. And because the British have a very high vested interest into putting away Nazis, you'd think that if he had done something heinous, they would have put him away. They didn't put him away. They cleared him and they passed him back to the new German government. That same German government also had an equally, if not higher incentive to put away Nazis and Nazi sympathizers. They charged him with a crime. And not only did they not com- uh, uh, they, they charge him, but he was not convicted. Not only did they not convict him, they found zero wrongdoing and they paid him a military pension ever since. Wow. There, was, there was a lot of insistence that he had somehow evaded some sort of justice, that he fled from the country. But if you look at the timeline and you have any semblance of history whatsoever, you'd realize that the war for him ended in 1945. And by fact, by fact, he didn't immigrate to Canada until 1956. That's 11 years. Now, to me, 11 years doesn't seem like a fair timeline to qualify what he did as flee. It also doesn't imply that he evaded any justice. He wasn't in much of a hurry. Uh, and, and another thing is that he wasn't evading any punishment. He was tried and let go. No questions asked. He followed the rules and legally immigrated to Canada with his family in 1956 and decided that in 1959, he wanted to move to the United States. And he legally immigrated to the United States. He followed all of the immigration laws. He's never broken any laws by account. He's never been involved with any sort of Nazi anything. In fact, by record, is not a Nazi. He has lived in the United States for 60 years. And to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Nuremberg trials, which were the trials of the SS Nazis for all the horrible things, some cruel human, some cruel ICE employee found one of the only living remaining people on earth that happened to be alive and happened to be at a concentration camp and happened to have physical evidence proving that he was there plucked him out of obscurity, had a court say, can I deport him based on this amendment? They said, well, yeah, technically this qualifies by this loose interpretation of the amendment that you're holding him. And they deported him. He's been an American uh, legal resident, basically a permanent resident for 60 years. And so I called this into question. I was like, this seems wrong. And, bro, I got so much heat. People were throwing flames at me. How dare you choose this hill to stand on? You're a moron. Fuck you. How could you possibly even want to look at this? And I said, I don't think you're looking at it. 
truthfully. Right. May I, may I interject just for a second? I'm, I'm Please. considering uh, that's a scarlet letter to the exponential degree, right? So if you have any association in your history of your life, so now we're talking 75 years uh, with something so inflammatory as Nazi or racist or, you know, there seem to be quite a few of these poisonous uh, topics and which if, if you've been anywhere close to this topic, uh, your, your viewpoint is, is unvalid or whatever. Um, so as a, as a Tennessee, I'm fascinated by your, I'm fascinated by your, your story and I'm, please continue. I, I'd well, love to hear about uh, some of the responses. My, as a Tennessean, I'm a citizen of Tennessee. I'm a native of Tennessee as a Tennessean. I, not only that, but the judge, the immigration judge who at least said that he could be deported, the immigration judge didn't deport him, but the immigration judge just said that, yes, this could be applied in this case if ICE and the Department of Justice decided to do that. It would be within their legal right, according to this one immigration amendment, to apply it. That judge was from Memphis. So I had a personal connection to this case in the fact that I'm also a citizen of Memphis. I'm a native Memphian and I'm a native Tennessean. The other is that, again, I have an emotional vested interest in getting rid of any hate because I would be considered by many people on maybe the right side of the spectrum to be a social justice warrior, someone that stand up, stands up and, and, tries to use whatever platform that I have for underrepresented and undercared for communities that are in my own community and otherwise. But the point of the story is this. All I have to do is change a few words around. And the same people that were throwing incendiary, hateful comments my way would actually side with my perspective. So I imagine that the, and the majority of people, to be completely and upfront and honest with you, the, the people that sent me the most hate and incendiary response were people that would be considered on the left and would fancy themselves to be social justice warriors themselves. So I thought one of whom surprised. one of whom was involved heavily in an organization that worked and advocated for Latinos, especially ones that are here, that have been here for a really long time and qualify in many respects for amnesty. You've been here for 30 years. You've been a model citizen. Let's go ahead and get you into the system that allows you to contribute taxes and, if, and not have to worry about being a criminal for no other reason than somebody potentially brought you here. Uh, as a young person that was outside of your influence, right? So in that case, I'm imagining another situation, which is I, uh, this human being is uh, born in Latin America, and they happen to live in a neighborhood that was a hub for MS-13 gangsters. And because of social pressure and because of only way that he could participate in economy, this individual had to participate loosely in the things that were happening in this MS-13 dominated neighborhood. And for those that don't know, MS-13 is a notorious drug and violent cartel. So this person is not an MS-13 member. 
MS-13 would not claim him as a member. He just happened to watch this little corner because that was his role and that was what he did to survive. And then in order to get out of this situation, he immigrates to the United States. Not only does he immigrate to the United States, he doesn't do so illegally. He files for amnesty and files for all the paperwork to become a, a, a legal resident. He gets chosen. He can come every year for three decades while he's living in the United States. He follows those rules to a T. He checks in. He renews his visa. He pays taxes. He has a family. His family's American. His children are American. His grandchildren are American. And then somebody decides from the same organization and the same people that just sent away this Nazi human that, you know what? What the MS-13 gangsters did were crimes against humanity. They were hate crimes. And though anyone associated with that needs to be deported. And then they find a slip of paper from this human being that says, you know what? You lived in this neighborhood and happened to hold a guard position on this one corner for two months. You never killed anybody. You never carried a weapon. You never did anything. And you moved here legally with the permission of the immigration service that is now accusing you of something incendiary. And all of a sudden, that person's life is disrupted because they come and they grab him and they ship him home and ripped away from his family. The only difference between Nazi and, and uh, this circumstance and that is that he's not a Nazi. He's MS-13. He's not from Germany in the uh, 40s and the 30s. He's from maybe it's Nicaragua or Ecuador or Mexico. That's the only difference. And if, if all we have to do is change a couple of words around and boom, they're on my side. So what I, I think this is a great transition to, to have this conversation with you because I know that you have some background and you have a lot to say about this. People don't understand that words are weaponized against them every day. The same tools like the internet that can be used for good can be used for bad. Someone like Tony Robbins, for example, uses something called neurolinguistic programming or NLP. And all things considered, most people would look at the way that he applies that technique and those those practices and they'd say he's doing great things for the world. And at the same time, someone like Donald Trump is also a very high competency NLP and like him or not, he has used those techniques to ascend to the top of the political sphere. And he's done so to by intentionally planting subconscious thoughts into people's minds and steering them accordingly. Now, my biggest thought, and this is where I'll pass it off to you, my biggest concern is mostly around this. It's that once we've normalized it in any degree, it now opens the whole field for anyone to step in and use that technique. So... What is your experience with language? How has that evolved over time? And what do you do to empower and protect yourself with language? Super interesting question. Uh, one, one thing to circle back on. Uh, let's, let's just include body language and all types of subconscious programming i'm of the opinion honestly man that we're we're contributing to energy exchange to our environments from our environments at all times regardless of whether it's conscious right 
picking up on that, right? So, yeah, with over the last year, one of my my goals and, and points of awareness is trying to occur as my best self in in my environment simply because I want to contribute to better energy exchange. Uh, with respect to the language, I consider that a huge, a hugely valuable tool, particularly in the written language, because we have the opportunity to proofread. Um, <laughs> uh, however, yes, the rabbit hole is super, super deep. So just, you know, consider something such a, a simple to discern or, or to discern, uh, you know, negation versus affirmation. Right. And for me, it's simply drawing awareness to those things. I'm, I'm trying to hear whether people are speaking in a, a affirmation or a negation and I'm developing the patterns for myself and, and understanding, wow, the people using affirmations are, are actually accomplishing things. And, you know, again, there's exceptions to the rule. However, uh, I've always operated, or at least as far as I can remember, I, I just operate on patterns and what I'm curious about. And so you know, coming upon some of the vocabulary work, Mark England and in Lifted, that definitely was appealing to me. It was curious. I was just curious, something else I could pay attention to. Um, and truthfully, just mind blown more or less ever since. And I'm trying to show up in, in all environments and again, contribute to this positivity and taking it, taking personal responsibility and recognizing, Ooh, I'm doing this stuff too. That's, neuro-linguistically programming the shit that I don't even want to occur in my life. And so, yes, uh, I personally, I, my strategy is to try to draw awareness to uh, one or two things at a given time. And I actually do utilize the, the wristband. Tell me about uh, that. So right now, um, intentionally trying to avoid using the word like as a filler, just be more intentional. And so when I, that's my personal point of awareness for the day. So when I recognize that I've done that, just wire together and recognize, Hey, I could do better. And, and for those that can't see this, <laughs> he's actually taking a rubber band that's on his wrist and popping his bare skin, which is not incredibly painful, but it's certainly not awesome. <laughs> it's just a right. I mean, truthfully, it just really uh, it's an anchor to my awareness. Um, and so, I'm a very very curious person. So I I choose different things throughout the day. Uh, another one is is my posture. I'll recognize when I have tension in one area. Uh, and I'll either snap the, the band or obviously I'll just try to chase that tension and connect it to drawing where's my breath or whatever. Um, we have a million rabbit holes we could go down, Brooks, but uh, <laughs> I do like what we're talking about with the language and just recognizing in environments. If it, I've been doing more listening uh, you know, along with that with 
the goal of being less of a guru and more of a listener, better, better suggester. A little, uh, uh, a little tangent on the popping of the wrist uh, and the rubber band. I know, uh, I, I believe it's correct in saying that there, Charles Barkley was notorious for using this mechanism in basketball as an NBA player. And when he'd practice, anytime he did something good, he would pop the wristband. So if he's in practice and he does something great, he pops the wristband, he pops the wristband only when he did things that he really thought were good. So what he did when he got into games is that he would pop himself if something didn't go to his liking because it was a positive reinforcement already mechanism that was already built in. So even though he wasn't getting the result that he wanted, he still used the mechanism to attune his awareness back to staying on the positive, staying on the positive. So that's a fun little tangent. And to add to your point about not wanting to be a guru, although I did spend a considerable amount of my time on this Instagram post telling people what I had found and what I thought about it, what I also did was invite people to help me understand what they believed I was missing from this equation. I laid out a set of facts to the best that I had at the time, and I invited people to tell me what I was missing. And to my surprise, um, there were people that were supportive, which was fine. Um, They had nothing to add other than that they were supportive. But the people that were incendiary offered nothing. They didn't offer me alternative facts. They didn't offer me alternative opinions. It's that you suck, and that's it. You suck, and fuck you. That was it. Um, So – I guess uh, to add on to what you were saying, it's it's one thing to jump on a soapbox and to tell people why they're wrong. It's another to invite them to engage in some sort of dialogue or conversation, even if that dialogue or conversation makes you uncomfortable. And I'd say especially if that dialogue makes you uncomfortable. Let's talk about discomfort. Love it. You, you riff, riff on discomfort. You're a man that doesn't live by comfort alone. Tell me about discomfort. Yeah, I mean, with the, with the serious fun duality in mind, uh, I want most of my life to be comfortable, and I, I would prefer to choose the most, dis, most uncomfortable things. Um, and and I, I imagine there's a, a spectrum in terms of our, our perspective of what things are, are actually difficult. So I'd like to start with – uh, first of all, just what's important. And um, we can go <laughs> way back, but the, the things that are important to me are basic survival needs. So air, food, water, <laughs> movement and sleep, whatever, shelter, money, all the way towards self-actualization. Um, uh in, in attaining those things and really focusing on the, the basic things, I'm of the opinion that human beings were, were meant to endure uh, discomfort in those basic survival needs. Um, my personal experience is through that, through uh, experiencing discomfort for air and actually doing purposeful, purposeful breath holds or incorporating fasting or periods of thirst periods of fatigue on purpose. It has improved my ability as a transferable skill to handle discomforts 
that in my, you know, if, if in our vernacular, maybe more manufactured, the discomforts of somebody disagreeing with you on Instagram or the discomforts of having a, a conversation with somebody you're afraid of what they might think, even though you know that you're sitting next to each other and you have 359 degrees of, of agreeableness. A lot of those are manufactured discomforts. And, and for me, I'm way easier to connect the consciousness to that when I know I've endured things that are actually hard. You, <laughs> used, you used a phrase before we started recording and, or a, 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 a word, and that word was anti-fragile. Sure. What did you mean by that? Uh, well, are you familiar with the, the book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Anti-Fragile? I am familiar with the book. I'm going to operate and will operate under the assumption that the listeners have never heard of this book and don't have any working framework for that concept. Sure. The, the subtitle is Things That Gain From Disorder. So the book is Anti-Fragile Things That Gain From Disorder. And the way that I receive the concept is essentially, um, you know, in biology, we'd call it hormesis or um, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So the, the idea is that by applying a stimulus, a, you know, something that's uncomfortable, um, applying chaos in the correct amount allows this super, comp super compensation and allows the, the organism or the market or whatever, you know, the, the book outlines a thousand different, <laughs> you know, topics, but um, the net, uh, impact is positive you know from it's basically when we strength train right? we're in effect we're doing something stressful what really happens is we benefit from the recovery period after the stressful thing and so yeah potentially what i'm talking about with the you know fasting and sleep deprivation is really just that it's uh you know, applying stresses in, in appropriate amounts so you can be stronger and then potentially hacking the, my own mentality towards the perceived discomfort of, of things that are coming up in life. Because mostly they're, they're quite frivolous compared to not being able to breathe or not having food to eat. One of the byproducts of our modern culture is that we have everything we need to avoid physical discomfort and once we begin avoiding physical discomfort we begin our other parts of our being begin to essentially create or manifest the discomfort for us to work through so as our physical discomfort has gone down our emotional and psychological stresses have gone way up are we receiving any more or less stress than any other human ever? The argument and the science says we might be experiencing more stress overall because we are avoiding physical discomfort in all kinds. I would say that one of the biggest challenges that faces our society, particularly in the States right now, is a working belief that avoiding discomfort is for our benefit that there is a some sort of benefit from avoiding discomfort. Uh, 
And in the case of having a conversation about the Nazi concentrate guard that was not a Nazi and barely qualified as a concentration camp guard, that people are avoiding the psychological and emotional discomfort of having a conversation centered around a topic that they don't like to talk about. If you are in any, uh, I've only been married for a little over a year. And to be honest, as far as knowing a lot about marriages is concerned, I'm going to be towards the bottom of the list. How could I? I've only been doing it for about a year. But of all the things that I've learned so far, which are many and many to come, of all the things that I've learned so far is that avoiding conversations that make me uncomfortable makes the problem worse. And if that is true for me on an individual level, I can only imagine and start to make assumptions about what that does on a times 350 million person scale or a three and a half billion person scale. Um, it's been really highlighted at the forefront of my mind based on conversations like this, for example, uh, how much I personally avoid discomfort, <laughs> usually in conversation. Uh, Solidarity, I, dude. It's, yeah. I, I would imagine we're all subject to it. Yeah. And, and I guess if we're trying to do anything, it's to highlight and maybe bring awareness to the fact that or bring awareness to this belief that discomfort is for our benefit if it's in the right dose. And people can take action towards uh, dosing themselves with certain types of discomfort in order to grow. You've mentioned a couple. You mentioned breathing, uh, a little bit of fasting, a little bit of water, maybe uh, sleep, a little bit of depriving yourself of sleep or um, going really hard in training. Do you have any other areas of your life where you dose discomfort or see opportunities to dose discomfort to improve the quality of your life? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to connect to your, uh, your concept about language and the written word into spoken word, into body language, etc. One of the things that I have made a, a, a point to do is to identify what level of comfort I have in, in confrontation. So uh, if I feel, oh, I could, I'm fine sending a text. I'm going to do the audio message. I'm going to go one, one level next so that I'm challenging myself to do something a little bit less comfortable. Um, and I've taken that in, from interpersonal uh, communication as well as you know, in business. When it's easier to send an email, I'm going to pick up the phone and make the phone call and just do this now handle this now rather so yeah that's definitely i think there's a spectrum with with regard to communication and one of the variables that's leading to us uh resisting discomfort is it's just really easy to send a text message and well yeah i told her that i thought that you weren't even heard though because this is just a barrage of text messages among the rest of their distractions in life mm. and taking extreme ownership for their, their comprehension of, of what you felt, be more explicit and more intentional with relaying that information and how you felt. And I think uh, your, I think your, <clears throat> excuse me, I think your tactic uh, for slowly 
pushing the boundaries is actually quite brilliant because many people assume that they have to go from, say, zero to 100, right? Like that's the euphemism that we might use, um, that they have to make these huge overhaul changes in their life. But the tactic of doing just the next degree of challenge yeah not text send a voice note if you're used to sending voice notes make a live phone call if you're used to doing live phone calls get on the video call if you're used to doing video calls have a face-to-face conversation there's there's a whole spectrum of degree there and i i think it's absolutely brilliant and something that can be applied to all areas of their life. Uh, I do it with my fitness. You know, I'm not trying to, and from a very, very simple thing to understand for the average listener, I'm not trying to take my bench press from 135 pounds to 350 pounds. You know, I'm trying to take it from 135 to 137 and from 137 to 140. Uh, and many people can uh, create, I've created, I'll speak personally, I've created especially psychological boundaries or barriers in my mind by thinking that I had to go from zero to a hundred instead of going from zero to one. Yeah, I love that. I mean, one of the, one of the main tenets of you know, anti-fragile, if you want to keep talking about that, is that it's an inappropriate challenge. Um, and if we want to connect even further mental lattice and start to connect more concepts, I mean, that's, that's one of the requirements of flow state or as if we might consider that to be peak, uh, peak living, the, 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 the uh, skill level meets the challenge. Hmm. Right. And so if we're constantly just avoiding the, the challenge, then there is no flow. Hmm. So definitely challenge. Yeah. If the challenge seems too daunting or unsafe, we can't enter into a state that allows us to fall into that flow. Exactly right. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, at least that's how I'm receiving it. And the the hypothesis that I'm testing. Yeah, dude, man, honestly, this, uh, the amount that we've been able to talk so far, about 50 minutes, is right in line for about how long these shows are. It's very clear to me that I need a Kurt part two. Um, but in the, you know, to respect your time and respect your family, uh, I want to make sure that people know exactly if they decided they wanted to keep up with you, where they could do that. And of course, if you have any final words or things that you'd like to jam on before we hop off the microphone, now would be the time. All right, man. Well, truthfully, guys, you can send me a personal email or even text message. Uh, I'll, I'll share that stuff with Brooks for the show notes. Yep. Great. Um, and I'm, I, it, my new experiment is um, I've heard of a couple of times a new platform called Locals. And, you know, we'll see how that goes, but I'll, I'll share a link to that as well. Just, um, attempting to to develop some kind of online community where we are it's called center out leadership basically the the concept is we're taking personal accountability for ourselves and how we show up and attempting to relay that energy into all our environments whether it's you know a paying client or a student uh, or just the person you run into at the gas station Um, I, i i have recognized and been humbled extremely over the last 
couple of years in particular, uh, being connected to the strong coach and, and so many great other influences, uh, that there are basically infinite variables and opportunities to level up, to lean into a potential limitation that you choose even, right? So it could be something that you actually want to get better at versus somebody telling you you should get better at this uh, and just start to apply it in your day-to-day for the good of yourself and for everyone else. And those are, those are pretty heady topics. However, uh, I want to have those conversations and I want to utilize all the reps that you Brooks or any other listener has also accomplished. They're sitting at their seat at the table. I'm sitting at mine. Let's have a conversation about what you see different because I just want to be better for everyone. I hope, I hope the world gets better. Mm. So amen, man. Yeah. Here's to relay that. Uh, <laughs> yeah here here's to being anti-fragile seriously i appreciate the conversation uh always engaging uh you're a great mover you're a great parent you're a great husband you work in your business you you do a lot of things for your community so uh it's always a pleasure to have people like you come onto the show share their perspective and i can't wait to have you on again man i appreciate it thanks a lot man hey uh, as, as good as technology has been to our relationship i I do hope to see you in three dimensions one one day. Well, uh, let's, let's make a mantra. You know, by, by yeah, summer twenty twenty two. I met Kurt in Brooks person. And I will meet in person and <laughs> yeah. have it and have a camera. Hey, uh, uh, so be it. So be All it. Right, Thank you, Kurt. Thanks a lot, Brooks. Take care, bud. Thank you for listening to this serious fun conversation with Kurt Bignarsik. This show is brought to you by you. If you'd like to support the show, you can rate it five stars, leave a kind comment, or by sharing it with a friend. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.